I bring you greetings from the body of Christ in Washington, D.C. Uh, one of the exciting things I get to do now in my new job is I travel around a lot and get to, uh, to talk to a lot of different people a lot of different places. For example, uh, last week I was in Denver and uh, met with a group of about 40, 20, 30 somethings that they have a group they call the Forge. It's a very kind of grassroots type thing. They don't have a website. They meet at a pub twice a, a month. But it's about 40 very, very committed uh, Christians who see God taking them on a career track that will place them in some of the most strategic places in the city of Denver. And their goal, they've got a 20-year plan that they're working on to take back the city of Denver for Christ. And it's very exciting, very exciting. I see things like that happening all over the country. It's just, it's very encouraging for me to be out and see these sort of things. So uh, be, um, be encouraged. There are people just like you meeting at campuses all over this country. And um, it's interesting because one of the things, I, I was a sociology major, which means I had to go out and learn how to do something else after I graduated. <laughs> we have sociology, no sociology majors, I hope. Okay, good. People wouldn't. Is there still a department of sociology? Probably not, right? Okay. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that interests me is, is seeing the different generations and how different generations kind of look at things very differently. Um, for example, my generation, the baby boomers, for probably 30 years, they talked about us and did surveys to find out what we were afraid of over and over again. You know what the number one fear of my generation was? Speaking in public. Really, because it's all about us, right? And this is one of the problems with baby boomers. Um, interestingly, I saw something about two years ago. They did a study on your generation. And one of the questions they asked is, what is the number one fear of your generation? And you may be surprised to hear what it is, but the number one fear is leading a meaningless life. To me, that's a lot more significant than, than my generation. And gives me great encouragement, because I tell you, there's so many things wrong in the world today. And I seriously think that you're the generation that are gonna step up, particularly Christians in your generation, and, and do justice, love mercy, and radically change the world for Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, though, because you've got this idea that, that you want to lead a meaningless life, yet one of the problems that's happening, and I mean, I know you guys are all still in school, but surely you have sisters or older brothers that are out in the workforce or friends that are out in the workforce, and there's something that's going on now that when you guys get out in the workforce, all of a sudden work's really not like it you thought it would be. In fact, uh, most of you have worked really hard to get good grades, to get into school. Now you're trying to get good grades and position yourself to get a good job when you get out. But a lot of people, particularly 20-somethings, get into the workforce and become very, very discouraged. In fact, they've even coined a phrase for this, for a life crisis. And it's people who get out in the workplace and realize that work is not at least they don't think, significant. So as a result, what most of them do is they go look for significance in their life somewhere outside of work. So they come in, do the minimal amount they can to get by, and then look for significance in a relationship, or a hobby, or in make, 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 pick a list, I mean, all sorts of different things. And what I'm gonna to suggest to you tonight 
is that the gospel has a cure for the quarter life crisis. Because my job tonight is to keep you from ending up in the quarter life crisis. And the interesting thing is the cure for the quarter life crisis is what I call the biblical doctrine of work, or really understanding what the Bible has to say about our vocational calling. Now, I want to go back and tell you a story. What do you think about a refugee camp, a tent city that stretches out in every direction as far as I can see? This tent city, interestingly enough, is in the edge of the greatest city in the world. The year is the end of the 5th century BC. The city is the great city of Babylon, and the refugees are the children of Israel, who have seen things no one would ever have to see. They saw an invading army, the Babylonians, come in and destroy their land, destroy the great city of Jerusalem, and they watched as this army destroyed the center of their religion, the temple built by Solomon himself. They saw their friends, their relatives, put to death under the sword. And then if it was to add insult to injury, the Babylonians gathered up all the brightest and the most important people, particularly young people, in the country and hauled them almost a thousand miles across the desert to Babylon. Now see, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of, uh, of Babylon at that time, had a strategy. When he conquered a kingdom, he would round up all the best and the brightest and take them back to Babylon. They weren't made to be slaves, but they were expected to come in and just kind of blend in to be assimilated into the culture of Babylon. And it was really a pretty smart strategy because you take all the best and brightest out, there's no one left in the land to, to have an uprising or to, to fight back. So this is the picture. You had this camp on the edge of Babylon of all these uh, Israeli um, refugees. And you can imagine how they felt. They're depressed. They don't know what's happened. They think God has deserted them. As a matter of fact, we can capture best the way they thought by looking at some of the Psalms. A number of the Psalms were written during the exile. Let me just let you hear a verse or two from Psalm uh, 37. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. You hear the frustration even in, in those verses. There were false prophets in the camp. And these false prophets were telling them, look, don't unpack. Don't go down into Babylon. Just stay here. God's going to bring a great army and just slaughter these Babylonians and we'll be able to go back to our home. So that's what they did. They waited at the edge of this great city of Babylon. And then one day, they got a letter from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah was an old dude, so he got left behind. They didn't think he was all that important. He sends a letter, and if you can imagine the picture of what's going on. I mean, they, didn't, they couldn't tweet out what was in the letter. They couldn't put it on email. They couldn't, couldn't post it, right? So everyone gathered together, and the first time this letter is read out loud, imagine the scene of just thousands and thousands of people listening to what the 
prophet Jeremiah has to say to him. And what the prophet tells him is, look, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is God still cares for you. The bad news is you're not going home anytime soon. Let me hear, let's just listen to a part of what he says in this letter. The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Now, I want to concentrate on that last part. Also, seek the peace and prosperity to see that I've carried you into exile because if it prospers, if you will prosper. Now, the interesting thing, if you look at that uh, verse in the Hebrew, where it says, also seek the peace and prosperity. Peace and prosperity, there's only, only one word in the Hebrew um, a version of that. And it's the word that we all know called shalom. And often, we take that word shalom and we translate it peace. Here it's translated as peace and prosperity. But that's a very weak translation. I believe the word shalom is probably, particularly for, for, for us today, for Christian today, is probably one of the most important words in the entire Old Testament. But I would suggest, or I would guess, you probably never heard a sermon on it. You really never heard too much about it. Now, the word shalom means much more than just peace. It means much more than the absence of war. It means harmonious relationships. It means personal welfare of people, animals, environments. It means prosperity. It means justice. It means peace of mind. It's all these things put together. If you go back and read about the Garden of Eden before the fall, there was perfect shalom in the Garden of Eden. Everything worked exactly as God had designed it. But then what happens? Sin comes along. And when sin enters the world through one man, it has a devastating effect on Shalom. Imagine the world as a giant tapestry, and there are thousands of little threads woven, thousands, millions of threads woven together to produce this incredibly beautiful picture. But then when sin comes in, that whole tapestry just begins to unravel. And that's what sin is doing to the world. It's unraveling the shalom that once existed that God had made. Now, it's interesting. The Old Testament prophets understood this idea of shalom. We've already seen what Jeremiah said, and you can read all the prophets talked about this. The prophets dreamed of a new age in which the crookedness would be made straight where rough places would be made plain, where the foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower, the mountains and streams would be red with wine, a time when weeping would be heard no more. People would work in peace, their work having meaning and point. The lion would lay down with the lamb. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together 
in brotherhood and sisterhood. They prophesied this over and over. They saw this vision of the shalom that had been destroyed in the garden, and they prophesied that one day God would restore shalom to his creation. Let me give you my best shot at a definition of shalom. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which nature, <clears throat> excuse me, which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all respect, just as God had intended it. Now, imagine that crowd that's listening to Jeremiah's letter. There are four young men in that crowd that hear what he says, and they say, yes, we believe that that's God's call on our life to go work for the peace and the prosperity of the city that God has taken us into exile. To go work and see the people prosper that destroyed our civilization. Imagine that. We know these three young men, one by his Hebrew name, his name was Daniel. The other three we know by their Babylonian name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four young men say, we feel God's call on our life to do what Jeremiah has asked us to do. And then they made a difference. They said, we're going to accept this call to go reweave shalom in this city that God has taken us to. Now, when we think about calling and we think about going in and doing something, how do, how do we begin to think about that? I want to show you... Uh, um, an example that was uh, written by Oz Guinness, wrote a book called The Call a number of years ago. And what he said is that for Christians, our primary call is to be disciples of Christ. And that's basically a call to be. We are to become disciples of Christ. But as we become disciples of Christ, that works itself out in four secondary calls. And these are calls that we go do. And those four secondary calls are simply this, the call to the church. We're all supposed to play a part in the church. Our call to family. We all have a role in the family. Uh, many of you are sisters or brothers. Or um, uh, I'm a grandfather now, which is great. Um, so those roles will change. You'll be husbands and wives. Um, <clears throat> our call to the family is very important. Then there's our call to the community. It's epitomized by... Um, the story of the Good Samaritan, that we have a responsibility to the people in the community, both Christian and non-Christian. And finally, is our call to vocation. And of these four calls, I'm going to suggest the one that's most important, only because we're going to spend so much more time there than the rest, is this last one, the call to vocation. So, if we're called to go reweave shalom in these four areas, how do we do that? How do we begin to think about what that looks like? So let me give you a couple suggestions. First, I want to suggest to you there is no such thing as secular jobs and spiritual jobs. 
Now, I know all of us have heard someone say, well, you know, I've decided that uh, when I leave school, I'm going to go into full-time Christian service. Or maybe you've heard someone say, did you hear about Billy? He's quit his job at the, at the bank, and he's going to go into full-time Christian service. He's going to be a pastor or a missionary or a youth leader or whatever. And there's a sense in the church that there's two kinds of jobs. There's jobs that really serve God, and then there's the rest of us that are kind of out here, kind of second-class citizens in the kingdom. Now, the interesting thing is this idea of this kind of separation between the secular and the spiritual within the workplace is a fairly new thing. It's only been around for about 60 or 70 years. For the first 1,900 years, the church didn't exist. In fact, if you go back and read the Reformers, people like John Calvin, Martin Luther, they literally said, in fact, one of Luther's famous quotes is that the work of the milkmaid is just as important to God as the work of the priest. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that whatever God calls you to do is just as important to the kingdom of heaven as every other occupation. Now, I realize that sounds right, but we really don't believe it in the church today. Because what I'm saying is, if God has called someone to go run a Fortune 500 company, a Christian, to go run, and there are Christians today, thank God, that are running Fortune 500 companies. What we're saying is his commitment, his, what he's doing for the kingdom of God is just as important as the woman who God has called to stay home and take care of her children, the stay-at-home mom. That's what the reformers are saying. I believe that's what scripture teaches. It's not what we teach in the church. It's all about finding out what it is that God wants you to do. And that changes from time to time. He may call you to have a family for a while, then go out and go back into the workforce. Um, many of you, he may call you to one profession, then to another, then to another. I read a study the other day, it said, People that are graduating right now won't have four or five jobs in their lifetime. They'll have four or five careers. And the last couple of careers haven't even been invented yet. That's what you have to look forward to. So you have to begin to think about, how do I think about calling and God's calling on my life that might change in the way it looks in terms of vocation from time to time. So there are no um, secular jobs, there are no spiritual jobs. There are only jobs that God has called you to do. God is calling you to work for the peace and prosperity of the city that he's called you to. Right now, what is your calling? You're calling all of your callings now, right now, you're a student. And you should do that in a way that glorifies God. And you should do it in a way that you put everything that is in you into that work. Now, let me tell you about something else. There's something that I call the four-chapter gospel. And the four-chapter gospel is simply this, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's a way of looking at all of biblical history in kind of in one snapshot. It gives you a framework to be able to talk about God's redemptive plan for his creation. Now, the problem with this is that we have truncated this four-chapter gospel to two chapters. We don't talk about creation we talk, talk about restoration. Really, all we talk about in the church is the fall and redemption. 
So really, it's all about sin and how God sent his son to die on the cross for our sin. All that's true. But if you eliminate the first chapter, you don't know why we were created. And if you eliminate the last chapter, you don't know where we're going to end up. So you get this very truncated view of God's redemptive plan. And here's the problem. It becomes all about us. Dallas Willard calls it the um, gospel of sin management. And see, I think for us to understand what God's doing in the world, we have to see this bigger picture, this four-chapter gospel. See, because creation tells us the way things were. Fall tells us the way things are. Redemption explains the way things could be. And restoration shows the way things are going to be. Let me show you how this works out in, in a more practical way. We believe that when Jesus walked on the face of the earth that he healed the blind. We read the stories. We believe them. We believe he fed the 5,000. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus heal everyone that was blind in Israel? No. Did he feed everyone that was hungry in Israel? No, he didn't. Could he have? Of course he could have. He was the son of God. Then the real question is why didn't he? And you talk to theologians, they'll tell you, well, he was demonstrating his power and you know, all this kind of stuff, and all that's true. But there's a very simple explanation that we can understand by looking at this framework. What do we say that redemption is? Redemption is showing us the way things could be. What chapter were we in when Jesus was on the face of the earth? The chapter of redemption. The chapter we're still in. When Jesus healed the blind man, he was showing people there could be a time when no one's blind. When he fed the 5,000, he was showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. And as his disciples, we're to live out our lives in this third chapter of the gospel, showing people the way things could be. Think about this a second. Are you showing people in your life today a picture of the way things could be. When we look at the church, the body of Christ, whether we're assembled or whether we're, we're out doing whatever God's called us to do, are we giving people's examples? Are we giving them a glimpse, not only of the way things could be, but a glimpse of the way things are going to be? Listen, people today need hope more than they need anything else. The best way for people to get hope is to get a picture the way things could be. This is what shalom is about. Shalom is showing them the way things could be. God is calling each one of you in whatever situation he's put you to begin to reweave shalom. And this four chapter gospel gives us a way to look at that. And I would suggest it's not till you see this bigger picture of what God's doing can you really understand how your story fits in to his story. Let me give you another piece of, um, of, of uh, information that really comes out of this four-chapter gospel. We need to know where we came from. We need to know about the garden. We need to know why man was created and what we were supposed to do. We also need to understand where we're going. I have a good friend named Richard Pratt. He says, we think Jesus came to forgive our sin, 
Make our souls sparkle to sprinkle us with peace and joy so we can sprout wings when we die, grab a heart, and join an eternal choir. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The reality is God saved you. God took you out of darkness and brought you into the light. He took you out of death and breathed life into you for a reason. And that reason is not in the future. That reason is now. Now, there is a future, and that's why we have to know about restoration. We have to know about the time that God's going to come and restore shalom. But God has a mission for you right now, and it's to work for the peace and the prosperity, to work for the shalom of the city that he's placed you in. N.T. Wright theologian in England says this, the point of Christianity is not to go to heaven when you die. Rather, it's putting the whole creation to rights. It's restoring shalom. Now, what does our vocational calling accomplish? If we do it in the right way, if we do it with the right motivations, this is what it'll do. First, It'll glorify God. Second, it'll serve the common good, which is what we've been called to do. We've been called to be good neighbors. And finally, it will advance the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those two terms are, are really interchangeable. What we have to understand is everything we do to the glory of God has intrinsic value. All of our work... The most mundane thing you will do tomorrow as a Christian, if you understand it correctly, serves as kingdom work. The, the, the exam you have to study for it that you should be studying for tonight, um, that has kingdom value. And what I want you to do is shift the way you think because once you begin to realize that everything you do has intrinsic value to God. See, we think, well, God's got me here so I can witness. And that's right, and that's good. But work is more about being able to witness. Work is not only an opportunity to witness, but it's to do what God has made you to do. We were made to work. In Genesis, we read that Adam was put in the garden by God to work it and to take care of it. Both of those things that we're supposed to do. You see, Paul says in Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. That's studying for that exam tomorrow. That's going to lunch with your friends. That's everything you do, whether it's part of your vocational calling, part of your service to the community, part of your service to your family, or part of the service to the church. Everything you do should be seen as reweaving shalom. I worked for Microsoft for a number of years. And this is a poster. I wish I still had the poster. Um, this was Microsoft's slogan for a while, then they changed it to something else. But this should be our slogan. This should be, the Christ this should be our slogan today as Christians, that we're going to change, change the world to go home. Let's get serious about what God called us to do, or let's, just, or let's just don't worry about it at all. And what I'm here to tell you is we need to be serious. And I think your generation has the opportunity to turn this world upside down for Jesus Christ. And it's going to come because you begin, to, as you begin to realize that the most powerful tool he's given you to change the world, to change culture, to, to change institutions, is your vocational calling. What he is calling you to do. Right now, your students, 
two or three years from now, you'll be out in the workforce. God will call you into different vocations. And he wants you to use what you do to absolutely change the world. Gabe Lyons, who uh, started an organization called Q, uh, captures the heart of many Christians when he says, I can't imagine anything more important or significant in our lifetime than to be part of the church recapturing its role in shaping culture. When we do this, the life-giving message of Jesus Christ will go forth in ways unprecedented in the 21st century. Dr. Plantinga wrote a book called Engaging God's World. He said this, Christians who go to work for the kingdom, and that's every Christian, simultaneously go to war. What's needed on God's side are well-educated warriors, warriors who really know what's going on. We are now fallen creatures in a fallen world. The Christian gospel tells us that all hell is broken loose in this sad world, and that in Christ, all heaven has come to do battle. Christ has come to defeat the powers and principalities, to move the world over onto a new foundation, and to equip a people, an informed, devote, determined people, to lead the way in righting what's wrong, transforming what's corrupted, and doing things that make for peace, expecting these things, will travel across the border from this world to the new heaven and the new earth. I want to tell you a story about a young man. His name was John McGee, Jr. In 1940, very committed Christian, uh, grew up in a, a Christian home. In fact, his parents were missionaries in China, came back to the United States so that he could get an education. He got a full-ride scholarship, brilliant guy, got a full-ride scholarship to Yale, and he passed it up. Instead, he believed God was calling him to go across the border into Canada and join the Royal Canadian Air Force. It was 1940. Uh, the war in Europe was raging. The United States had not yet gotten, gotten into the war. This young man, God had gifted him with incredible talents, and before long, he was one of the top pilots in his class. And in less than six months, he was flying fighter missions over the English Channel at night, trying to push back the surge of Hitler's bombers that were coming across the Channel and raining death and terror on London every single night. In fact, he was such a good pilot, not only did he fly fighter missions at night, but they asked him to test fly new planes that they were developing. And one day in 1941, September, he was assigned to test a new model of the Spitfire. And during a high altitude test, he took the airplane up to an altitude of over six miles. And as he was coming back down, a poem started to form in the back of his mind. He was actually a, a fairly good poet. And when he landed, he wrote a quick letter to his parents were still in New England, and on the back of the letter, he wrote the following poem. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter silver wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of. Wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence. Hovering there, I've chased the shouting wind along, 
and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long, delirious, burning blue, I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace, where never lark, nor even eagle flew. And while with silent, lifting mind, I've trod the high, untrespassed sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. Three months later, John McGee was killed. He was 19 years old. John McGee did not lead an insignificant life. He answered the call that God put on his heart to do something that was difficult, dangerous. Interestingly enough, many other young men did the same thing he did. Winston Churchill said about those pilots that would go up every night to try to stop some of the bombers from coming through. He said this, he said, in the Battle of Britain, which is what they called it, never have so few done so much for so many, yet no one knows who John McGee was. But God knows who he was. And God knows that what he did was so good so faithful that when he stood in front of the master, the master looked at him and said, well done, my good and faithful servant. Is that what you want to hear when you finish whatever it is God's called you to do? It's what I want to hear. It's what we should strive for. Our redemption enables us to be agents of shalom, to be models of shalom, to be witnesses to shalom in a world that desperately needs the hope that we can show them. We can show them the way things could be. Shalom is a way of being in the world. The Christian gospel invites us to partake in shalom, to embody shalom, and to anticipate its full realization with the coming of the final kingdom of God. What God is calling each one of you to do, right here, right now, is to begin to reweave shalom, to begin to show people the way things could be. And by doing so, you will become a signpost pointing to the way things will be. And God will greatly use you. My charge to you tonight is do what Daniel did. Go be a Daniel. Say, yes, I hear what God is saying, and I take that challenge in my life, to go reweave shalom in a civilization that hates Christianity, that's trying to destroy Christianity. We're called to go work in that kingdom. Reweave shalom in the place God has put you, and by doing so, you will transform this school. You'll transform this community. You'll transform this city. And dare I say it, we could possibly transform the nation by the power of Christ 
working in each one of us. Work for the peace and the prosperity. Go work for the shalom of the city that God has carried you to. Because if it has shalom, you too will have shalom. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is difficult stuff. This is stuff that changes cities. It changes civilizations. And you've used Christians through the ages to make significant inroads. To we reave shalom. To make a difference. And Father, we would pray tonight that you would show each one of us how to do that in our lives. Not 10 years from now, not two years from now when we graduate, but, but tomorrow. Give us opportunities that we might indeed work for the peace and prosperity, work for the shalom of the city that you have brought each one of us to. We pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.